I'm Kendra Tombolato, here with Mei Zhang, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China Travel. Each week, we'll be heading to a new place in China to share our top local tips and tricks, highlighting our favorite food, hotels, and experiences, as well as sharing resources. We'll be recording these episodes live on Clubhouse every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And after the podcast portion, we'll open up for live Q&A and story sharing. So if you'd like to join live, please follow May at Zhang Meijie or me at Ketan Bolado. If you're joining and catching up on past episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. And lastly, if you're interested in traveling China with us or attending any of our other virtual events, please visit our website at wildchina.com. Today, we are going to Shangri-La. So we are talking about Shangri-La, a name I think many of you have probably heard before. It was first coined by James Hilton in his novel Lost Horizon, which is a very good book. And he describes it as a surreal place of perfection. So in the book, it's this sort of place that nobody knows how to reach. But when you get there, it's incredibly perfect and wonderful. And it's somewhere on the edges of Tibet. So within the last, I don't know, I guess, May, you can tell us how recently they renamed it. But the Chinese government renamed what was previously called Zhongdian to Shangri-La. And that's how it's known in English, Shangri-La Yunnan. So yeah, May, can you start off by giving us a bit of an introduction on where Shangri-La is located? Maybe a bit of like the naming history and why it's a significant place of interest. Sure. If you talk to anybody who feels that they've sort of had an intimate relationship with Shangri-La, they'd brush you aside. They'd go like, it's not Shangri-La, it's Zhongdian, because that is the name. It's known among the locals there, among anybody who's been to that area before 2000. I think the change of name happened somewhere around 2000 or shortly after. So prior to that, it's Zhongdian. Where is it? If you think of Kunming as the center of Yunnan province, Kunming is the capital city where most people fly to, Shangri-La is to the northwest, very, very much close to the Tibetan border there. And that whole area is a prefecture called Diqing Prefecture with three counties. So Shangri-La is only one of the counties. And today I want to touch on some of the other two counties as well, but we'll get there. And to me, this area is incredibly beautiful because it's even more beautiful than Bhutan. It's also Tibetan culture, but it's a different part. It's the eastern Kham area. It's still on the Tibetan Himalayan mountain range, but it's further east and more southern than the Lhasa, sort of Tibet proper. So this area is agrarian mostly, not so much nomadic, even though there are lots of yaks around as well, but it's a lot greener with farm fields, very high up in elevation, 10,000 feet in general. There are some lower areas called Tachun, which we'll get to in a second. So the whole area is just these, in the plains, it's these rolling open highland meadows. And then in the distance, it's just snow-capped glacier mountains rising all of a sudden, the clouds. It's just incredibly beautiful. And all seasons when you go there, because of the farming culture, you will see in the fall, you will probably see the barley wheat drying on racks. And in the spring right now, right now it's still a little bit cold for that region. Actually, their spring comes a bit later in May. And in May, you will just find wild irises blooming all over the place. A little later, May or June, lots of rotor dendrons blooming higher in the mountains. So it's just a gorgeous land with 
Tibetan families, houses, yaks on the meadow, and uh, a couple of lakes. And the three great rivers run through the region. That's the Yangtze, the Mekong, the Sawing, all run through this region. I hope that paints a picture. I hope I do a decent job to show you what it looks like. Yeah, that was awesome. What is it about Shangri-La, you know, and the surrounding areas that draw in travelers? You know, why is it a place of interest? Uh, So this whole area wasn't a place of interest at all prior to, I would say, early 90s because it was not open and it used to take two days of riding on the bus to really get from Kunming to this area. And I have a funny joke. It's extremely un but it will paint you the picture. So I was, I think, in my last year or last years in college in Kunming when a teacher of mine came from this area. She actually graduated from Beijing University and she came to teach at Yunnan University where I studied. So I wanted to go see her hometown because the picture she showed me was stunning. And I told my dad, I said, I borrowed a backpack. I'm going to ride two days buses to go there. And my dad was like, where are you going? I said, this Tibetan area called Zhongdie. And he's like, why? You shouldn't go. That's the land of the barbarians. In Chinese. And I was so offended. I said, well, that's a term that people would refer to us, Yunnan, in total. Now the Yunnan people would refer this term to refer to the Tibetan area. That's so rude. (laughs) But I know where that came from because it came from ignorance. It came from a lack of communication way back because of the distance, the transportation. There was an old movie that showed Tibetan culture in a more older light, right? So, but over the last 30 years, the roads are connected and now you can fly to Shangri-La. It is now one of the most popular destinations. I think the earlier terms that were used were not relevant at all. People flock to the region, I would say for a couple of things. To me, there are three major draws and to most travelers, the first part is the national parks. The three rivers I mentioned earlier, later on, were turned into a national park called the Three Rivers National Park, and it's beautiful. Lots of sort of tourist facility where you can walk along paved paths, that sort of thing. And there's also Bita Lake, Bita Hai in the area. People also go there for Songzhan Monastery, which is the biggest monastery in Yunnan, Tibetan monastery. Right, so people go there for Tibetan culture and the national parks. That's the first one or two things. To me, there's two additional draw, which is lesser known about the region. One is a unique Catholic Tibetan culture. This is quite unusual, but it goes back, Kendra, it ties back to what you were saying earlier about James Hilton's book, The Lost Horizon. The picture that he painted in there when this person, I think it was a plane crash, woke up and found himself in this pristine idyllic village that is uh, the locals there practice three religions side by side, living peacefully in this beautiful hamlet. That is exactly the kind of villages you will find Further from Shangri-La, most travelers don't get to go that far. But to me, that's like the most beautiful, very rarely visited parts of Shangri-La. Well, I'm using Shangri-La term to refer to that whole area here. That's the second thing that I really personally think it's worth a trip. Third thing is the snub-nosed monkeys. This is interesting. Monkeys, generally speaking, people think of monkeys in zoos. They are kind of 
mischievous and abundant. What's special about them? Because these Yunnan snub-nosed monkeys are very rare. They are the only species of monkeys that like to live in high elevation. They live somewhere around 10,000 feet in elevation and very shy, very rarely seen. But beyond that, it's the conservation story of how sort of China's awakening to conservation was very much tied to the conservation of the snub-nosed monkeys. To me, going to Shangri-La without a trip to visit them and understand that journey of awakening of Chinese conservation, environmental and uh, biodiversity conservation, it definitely shouldn't be part of the journey. So uh, let me recap. Three big draws to me. To general tourists, it's the scenery and Tibetan culture. In addition to me, I add two points. It's the Catholic Tibetan culture and snub-nosed monkeys story. Awesome. So I think I'm going to ask a question here that I assume a lots of people have on their mind. One is I know something that I've been asked a lot designing trips in this area is how do you actually get in and out of Shangri-La and then the surrounding areas? So where is the best place to see the snub-nosed monkeys and how to get there as well? So a bit of sort of transportation advice, if you don't mind. No, no, that's a perfect story because that helps me to launch into the next part that I want to talk about, which is a way that I think is the better way to really visit area. Now, majority of travelers, when they go to Shangri-La, what do they do? They fly straight from Beijing, Shanghai to Kunming, and they stay at the airport for like two hours and transfer on another flight to get to Shangri-La. There is a Shangri-La airport itself. That's what most people do. And they go there for three days and they fly out. To me, that's terrible. Why? The elevation is so high that you are just going there straight to suffer through your altitude sickness and leave. And by the third day, your altitude sickness is getting mellower, but by then you're already leaving. It's just a bad deal. Instead, there are lots of direct flights. Again, the major cities from Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou, or or even Hong Kong, you can fly straight to a much bigger tourist destination called Lijiang. I I assume everybody here knows about Lijiang, Old Town. Not my favorite place to go just because of the crowds and, um, yeah, mostly the crowds and the tourist scene. It turns me off a little bit. But I don't mind flying to Lijiang because of the ease of access. So you fly there and you can spend one night, if budget allows, book the Aman on top of a little hill near the Old Town for one night. Or any of these other bivus, a smaller lodge or the Songsam Lodge, much more quiet, not in the old town, spent one night there. That's at about 7,500 feet in elevation. So you're not going to suffer yet, but you are already acclimatizing, right? And then from there, I would hire a car, a guide, and go drive along the Yangtze River all the way west It's a five-hour drive to get to the small town, small village of Tacheng. Don't stay in the Tacheng village, but there's a don't stay in Tacheng town. The town itself is kind of ugly, not very interesting. But outside of town, there's a a village where the Songsam Hotel is, and there's another Tibetan hotel called Abuda. We'll share some of these information in our upcoming blog posts about this area. These two little lodges are in the village. That is so beautiful and tranquil. You see different seasons. You see different plants in the terraced fields. Like right now, April, probably the wheat and rice have already grown out. But a month earlier in March, you see fields of yellow rapeseed flowers. Absolutely sunny. And from here, 
you can visit the Snubnose Monkeys National Park. You can go on hikes at a nearby monastery. Hacheng itself is still at very low elevation. So you can recover for two, three nights from Lijiang to Tacheng before you head over to Shangri-La and exit out of Shangri-La. That's a much better way. So something else I just wanted to add in here that I always thought was cool is that going along with your elevation uh, tip that there are actually direct flights from Shangri-La to Lhasa in Tibet. So if you want to work up to the elevation that way, that's another way to do it that I don't think too many people are aware of. So small tip there. Great, great point. A really wonderful way to see the contrast because this is the outer Tibet, the Tibetan area, right? So it's very different from Lhasa proper. When you get to Lhasa, it's much more about the monasteries. And honestly, if you have a guidebook and hit all the monasteries in Lhasa, you're going to get monastery out. It's just way too many. And so it feels like a capital that is of much grander scale. Yet in Shangri-La, in this whole region, it's much more intimate. You get to visit the villages, you get to go to the farmers' houses, and there's a warmth that is unique about this region that I love. It's a great way to combine if you have two weeks' time. Awesome. So sort of on that point about sort of the warmth and the local culture, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the Songsam story. I know you mentioned one of their lodges earlier, and I know that you know the founder. And I think it's a really cool story. So do you want to give us a little sort of overview? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bai Ma Duoji, he is an old friend, a typical, atypical, I, I would say, actually, Tibetan entrepreneur. He grew up in the little village next to Songsam Monastery and somehow worked his way to become a TV person. I think in, I'm not sure exactly whether it's camera or what specific skills and went to work at CCTV for a couple of years. And I think that experience somehow opened up his way of seeing the world differently. I, one of my favorite saying, Kendra, you know this, the real voyage doesn't require going to new places, but it is in looking with new eyes, right? That's by Marcel Proust. I didn't do it exact recitation of that. But so Baima came home with a very different view of how hospitality in Shangri-La was supposed to be. Very early on in the early 2000s, he had a small little lodge guest house next to Sunsan. I brought our alumni group from Harvard Business School to visit him. It was a small little place, but the story was endearing. You know, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. He kept at it. And whenever there's someone with a view that he respects or wants to find out more, he would engage you in conversations. So we had many conversations about how to create experiences aside from just the lodge itself, because lodging is a competition on simply hardware. That's fairly easy for other people to catch up. But when you go to the soft skills of really creating a warmth in the lodge, you need to have the right mindset. The management's got to be really into serving, into providing hospitality because that permeates through your staff, right? And also having a whole series of activities that engage your guests, whether you take them to Nishi black pottery making or 
to milk a yak or to learn how to make yak butter tea. All these activities require local access. And that's what Wild China has always been really into. And so, so we shared this with him and he was able, of course, being on site, he was able to develop a lot of these activities for the hotel as well. So over the years, he took his mission, his vision to develop a Tibetan hospitality further and further into areas lack of access, right? So from Shangri-La, he went to Benzalan, went to Deqing, and further went to Tacheng. And now he's opening up a series of lodges along the highway from Yunnan to Tibet. That is beautiful, but sadly for anybody who doesn't have a Chinese passport, it's not open to non-Chinese visitors. So you, you can't even get a Tibet travel permit to get you to that road. Tibet travel permit will only get you to Lhasa and Shikatse and some of the, along the highway all the way to Nepal. But this road connecting Yunnan to Tibet, sadly bringing you the news that it's not quite available yet. So that's his story. He's quite an entrepreneur. I respect him. And one of his daily routine, I think is worth sharing, is doing the Tibetan prostration, the religious ceremony. You know what it's like? It's a little bit like the yoga moves of Chaturanga, a little bit like that. But he would repeat that 50, 100 of it to stay fit. And also to just cleanse his mind while he's working on so many different challenging problems here and there. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that road trip. I remember when I first heard about it, that you could drive from Yunnan all the way to Lhasa and stay in these beautiful lodges along the way. I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. But so far, still only open to Chinese passport holders. So if you're one of those, you should definitely do it because <laughs> I, I wish I could. Well, Kendra, we have to work on it. I think, I think you've, um, you've done enough for the area that you deserve. <laughs> we, we, need, we need to work on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll try to talk to the local government, see what we can swing. Awesome. Okay. So moving on to our next bit of uh, travel info, any special culinary traditions or special foods from this area that you want to sort of tell us about? Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know any, actually, so I'm interested. No, I'm laughing because I think I go to Tibet for my spirituality. I don't really go there for food. (laughs) I'm sorry, but just because of the lack of produce historically, the diet, the cuisine, they're not as diverse. I mean, there are some things you absolutely have to try, right? They have Tibetan yak butter tea, which is godsend drink for fighting that harsh climate, the harsh winters. Once you drink that tea, it gives you lots of calories and also oils your lips and, you know, protects you against the elements. But in modern day of living, most people from the city will find maybe a few sips as an experience, but it takes a little getting used to. And the tsamba, tsamba, which is the barley flour dough, they roll it, they fry it, the barley wheat, and then grind it into flour. It's very fragrant. And then they add yak butter too. You can knead it in your hand as you eat. That's another staple of what the Tibetans there eat as well, or what they call momo, which is just Chinese dumplings with yak meat or beef. They do a fine job locally just as a staple diet, but I wouldn't say they are the culinary draw of the area. That said, two things are very precious in the region. 
One is matsutake mushroom. This is a mushroom that's very valued and prized in Japan. And、uh, Shangri-La is a huge producing area. Producing, it's not in the factory. They, they are all in the wild, so they are foraged in the wild, and usually early in, very very early in the morning, and traded in the middle of the night. And somehow, with airplane transportation and everything, they will make their way to Tokyo's supermarket by noon. It's an unbelievable delivery chain, but very fresh. The fatty ones, the prices go up from half a dollar to a hundred dollars a pound, depending on abundance of it. So it varies a lot. That's a priced item. That mushroom for making chicken soup. Another priced item is chongcao. You know that, Kendra? It's cordyceps in English. Cordyceps. Okay, thank you. Half of the year, it's a fungi, and no, actually, first it's a worm, and then a fungi grows out of it, and that's also something very expensive now. People sell them dried, also for making chicken soup. Apparently, it has a lot of nutritional effects. The third thing I actually really like is Tibetan snow tea, xue cha. They are. Pretty much the kind of lichen that's harvested in very high elevations in the mountains. They look like white tea leaves on the ground, rolled up tea leaves, or in the size of a half of a toothpick on the ground. And you harvest a whole bunch. It's bitter, so in Chinese medicine, it has a cooling effect on your body. A lot of Tibetans drink that to combat the heat that's generated with yak butter. So those are the couple of things I would definitely go to that area for. But the yak jerky is tasty. That is something you can take back to Beijing in a packet as a present. People would like that too.、Oh, it sounds good. I agree, though, on the Tibetan food being very heavy, at least for my taste. But I guess it makes sense for that part of the world climate. Yeah, exactly. Great. So our last bit here is: What is your local tip? Something that people wouldn't otherwise know that you would recommend to do or experience in this area as a whole. So, what's your local tip? Okay, there are. Three journeys. It's very hard for individuals to get to, but I'm just warning you that you need to do a little bit groundwork to get there. One is Baima Xueshan is the White Horse Snow Mountain, which is the mountain range separates Shangri-La from Deqing along the highway towards Tibet. That mountain range is stunning for hiking. Absolutely stunning, and it's fairly accessible because they have a ranger station. If you go from Dutching side, and you can actually go in there, but you just have to arrange with a local Tibetan guide. You can probably find out when you are in Shangri-La. That is a gorgeous hike. I would recommend. I did that hike with a photographer called Xi Junong way back twenty years ago, and it was hard but really pretty. Another beautiful hike is. To visit the village of Yubeng, just the word Yubeng in Chinese means scattering rain. It's such a romantic name because there's a there's a waterfall that comes off the high mountain and just drops a hundred yards onto the ground, and the Tibetans view that waterfall as holy. So they all take a hike into this village, Yubeng village, and go around this waterfall. It's not a huge waterfall. Don't think of Niagara. It's more like you think of three garden hoses. Probably the water would come down depending on the season and changes, right? So it's not a huge waterfall, but the hike to go to the waterfall and Yubeng village is beautiful. 
Now, there were stories of how the village was fighting for a share of tourism dollar and eventually they built roads. So now you can drive in there. I haven't been back since the roads opened. So the situation could be different, but that was a three-day hike that's worthwhile. The third trip, most people don't know. If you go from the Sawin Riverside, get to the very end of Gongshan, there's a four-day hike you can take to come all the way over to Sejong Catholic Tibetan village. And that hike is so rare. That really showcases the path the Catholic missionaries took 120 years ago at the turn of last century. Again, it's stunning with lots of history, lots of culture. So those are the couple of things I would absolutely recommend. Awesome. Thanks, May. Wild China Travel presents the China Travel Podcast, hosted by me, Kendra Tombolato, and Wild China founder, Mei Zhang. In this series, we'll be traveling to a different place in China each week to share our local tips and expert travel advice. To catch our weekly podcasts, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.